the Indigenous Connection Show. Tanse. My name is Randy Lynn and I'm the host for the Indigenous Connections radio show. Join me as we discuss various topics in regards to First Nations culture, arts, ideologies, and spirituality from both a historical and contemporary point of view. Randy Lynn, the Chickas and Mustassini, Nihia Uchini, Alakla Bish, Alberta, Egwatni, Wigan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Indigenous Connections Radio Show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn Nanamahu Kandalan. I am 33 years old, and my family originates from the Big Stone Cree Nation in Northern Alberta Treaty A territory. I grew up in Lakla Bish, Alberta, however, and currently I call Lakla Bish home again. Um, before I moved back to Laclabish, I was living in Edmonton and then Saskatchewan, Saskatoon more specifically. Um, during my years in the urban settings, I earned a education in Aboriginal mental health as well as a degree in Indigenous social work. Um, I con- consider myself very fortunate as I did have the opportunity to grow up around my culture as a young girl and this really influenced the way I perceived the world. As you could tell, it influenced the educational educational journey I took. Um, my culture is something I hold very near and dear to my heart, and I'm grateful for this opportunity every week to share a bit of my cultural understandings with all of you guys out there. So each week with this radio show, we will be exploring various topics in regards to Indigenous culture, May it be indigenous art, history, um, ideologies, and spirituality from both a historical and contemporary point of view. And I always like to make a point that why I mention contemporary is because there's this stereotype, this misunderstanding, unfortunately, that as indigenous people to Canada, to the United States, uh, we are relics of the past. And I'll be the first one to say that as an indigenous person, we highly identified by our past, um, by the past teachings, the culture, um, all of that. But we are still an evolving culture. We are still here today. Uh, the culture is evolving with the times. And you really see this in the arts, um, the way many artists utilize materials that are accessible to them in this contemporary world have really created their own style of incorporating the traditional styles with utilizing contemporary uh, platforms, if you will. So anywho, it's in my hope that by having these kind of conversations with each other that we can start to create a dialogue with uh, explanations. And my real end goal of this is to start building what I like to refer to as a bridge, a metaphorical bridge between the indigenous and non-indigenous communities and start to break down those stereotypes and misunderstandings and really move forward in the spirit of reconciliation. So reconciliation is a word that's been thrown around quite a lot in society this past decade uh, as a result of the national apology by the Canadian government in regards to the residential school era and the the responsibility, the roles they played in allowing for these schools to operate for so long and to cause so much harm to indigenous children, indigenous people in general. Uh, So reconciliation really is defined by the reality of 
all parties involved in an incident ready to work together to build a better future for tomorrow. So it's by having these conversations, I'm hoping that we can start to really understand one another and really with open hearts and open minds embrace one another. So today's topic is a continuation of last week's um, conversation about Okama Squeo, boss lady, and the roles women play. Uh, we will continue on with that conversation after the break. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections Radio Show. I'm your host, Randy Lin, and today is a continuation of the series called Okamao Squeo, uh, Boss Lady, um, Woman in Charge. So last week's conversation, we kind of talked about the roles Indigenous women played and the reality that we derive from a matriarch society, meaning we hold our women in very high esteem. Uh, from a very young age, the people are taught to respect women as they are the life givers, that they are the only ones with the ability to navigate a spirit and from the spirit world into this physical realm. And that is a beautiful gift in itself, and women needed to be respected for that. Um, so continuing on that conversation, we're going to kind of steer towards the decline of the matriarch society in Canada. So last week I talked about the story of the bison and how much influence it played on how the plains people understood the world around them. Um, I was very fortunate to hear some bison teachings from Elder sorry, Standing of the Wapaton Dakota people in northern Saskatchewan. Um, and he shared with us how the bison themselves operate in a matriarch society, how they have an alpha female, and how the women are in charge of taking care of the little ones. And anyone who's worked on the land and kind of in interacted with nature on that level knows how much that nature mother earth teaches us as humans as people right and that mother earth really was our first teacher so continuing on the story of the bison so the bison taught the plains people how to operate to respect the women that women are <laughs> essentially in charge when it really comes down to it um but continuing on with that we also understand with the turn of the 20th century, the bison population started to decline greatly. And there's many contributing factors to why the great herd, as it was re uh, referred to, diminished to mere, mere numbers of facing near extinction here in Canada. And honestly, the story of the bison could be a whole episode on itself. But what I really want to get to the point of is one reason the bison were becoming extinct was overhunting, over-slaughtering even. When the plains people hunted the bison, they only hunted when they needed to during certain times. And this was usually after spring when the new babies were born, that the herd had time to replenish itself. Um, and hunts would only happen once in a while. And then whatever was hunted... The people made sure to utilize every part of that bison to not let the death of that bison go in waste as there was a understanding a spiritual connection with that spirit of the bison that 
Those bison were here before us as humans, yet they still laid down their lives for us to survive. They did not have to do that for us, yet they cooperated in the hunt for us to survive off of them. So respect needed to be shown to the herd, to the bison. So in comes the uh, settlers, newcomers, and there wasn't that respect really for the bison once they came they saw these bison roaming in the millions and like oh this is for fun this is for entertainment i'm going to hunt these bison so over hunting and really just killing bison just for sport uh, letting carcasses rot where they lay another thing that was also happening was was colonial influence and the governments trying to establish themselves over the indigenous people of the land and when you study history, one way to conquer a people is to attack their economy. And for the people of the plains who survived greatly on this bison herd, this animal, that was literally our economy. So they started to slaughter the bison as a way of conquering the people, as a way of starving them out, understanding that that, that bison was literally our Walmart, our grocery store, our way of life. Uh, as people of the plains. So the government actually charged the cavalry to slaughter bison as much as they could. And they were getting paid for this as a way of conquering the people by starving them out literally. And there are um, many studies done on the famine that plains people face with the decline of the bison herd. All right. So by slaughtering bison constantly, nonstop hunting them, slaughtering, killing them, letting them rot, whatever, what can't happen anymore? Especially when we're attacking the female of a herd. The babies can't be born no more. And if the babies can't be born, then they cannot repopulate their numbers, right? So with the ongoing hunting, the ongoing slaughtering, especially for the female bison, this meant that they couldn't repopulate themselves, that the next generation could not be born, which kind of leads into my point of how important females play in all of our species and that we are dependent on the females as a species for blunt survival, right? So I just want to emphasize the importance of having pres uh, females present in any society so understanding how important the role of women are in any society of any species, we should just understand that they deserve respect, that we would not be here without them, right? That we would not exist without females being present and giving us that gift of new life. And we as a people, traditionally operated as a matriarch society for a very, 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 very long time. However, there was the decline of the matriarch society. And I want to kind of steer our conversation towards that today. And that will eventually lead into the missing and murdered indigenous women, girls epidemic that we face here, not only in Canada, but in the United States as well. So we're going to take a quick break and we will get back into that conversation. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn. And today's conversation is a continuation of the series, Okamawa Square, Boss Lady in English. 
Uh, I guess it could be interpreted in different ways, but I think boss lady is pretty powerful. Anywho, we are talking about the decline of the matriarch society here in Canada as indigenous people. Uh, we identified as a matriarch society, meaning we held our women in very high esteems. Rather, in today's contemporary uh, society, we often identify as a patriarch society, meaning we hold men in higher esteem than women. So we're going to kind of talk about how that uh, switch happened from being a matriarch society dominantly to being a patriarch society. So the indigenous people had developed their own ways of being long before the newcomers came to the new land, Canada, United States, um, what we refer to as Turtle Island. So ideologies of the patriarch system were first introduced when the European troops came to Canada and kind of started developing their forts and settling, right? And there was definitely a conflict of communication and understanding when the European settlers first came to the New World between the indigenous people. Uh, language often a big barrier and then ideologies, understanding how the world operates and societal views and values were also very different in a sense and when I think about this I think of the story of the Biothuk people and I remember studying them in elementary school and it's a very tragic story of what happened to the Biothuk people because of this misunderstanding this miscommunication so when people started coming to the new world uh, they were first settling into the east of Canada uh, and the Beothuk traditionally made their home in Newfoundland, um, Eastern Canada. So there was a clashing of society structures evident with ongoing violence against the indigenous people and as a result of competition for food resources between the Beothuk and the newcomers. So the Beothuk, their understanding, their ideologies of how society operated was of a collective one. Um, there was really no understanding of ownership of food resources. And when I say collective society, society I mean that they understood that the survival of one was dependent on the survival of all. So if one person didn't eat, they all didn't eat. And if someone didn't have enough, guaranteed they were going to share with their neighbors. And that's how they operated. So you have the newcomers, the settlers settling in north, northern, uh, sorry, eastern Canada and fishing. Fishing is a very big um, resource out there, right? So here are the settlers fishing and they have their nets full of fish. And the Beothuk people seen this and they started to take the fish out of the settlers' nets as they didn't understand that concept of ownership. And here's the clashing of understanding of values. So here the settlers seen these indigenous people and unfortunately didn't really have any respect for the indigenous people to begin with. And now these people that they have very low views of are as they view stealing from them, taking their food away from them, taking their resources and their survival. And this often led to violent attacks against the Beothuk people. So with ongoing racial tension, violent attacks against the Beothuk people, and then we have to factor in um, 
the indigenous people, the Biotak people, being exposed to diseases that they've never been exposed to before, so they had no type of immunity against it. So uh, disease, racial tensions, and violence ultimately led to the demise of the Biotak people as they went extinct. Um, it has been historically noted that the last Biotak woman to survive passed away in 1829 of tuberculosis at the age of 29. And because of this ongoing constant violence against the people and them facing the realities of enduring diseases that they've never had to fight off before, it was kind of a double whammy for the people, unfortunately, and they could not survive. Um, some people have stated that they may be part Biothuk, but it's hard to prove right now. But what we do understand is the Biothuk pre people pretty much faced ultimate extinction because of this. And because the women were getting sick or they were, and the men were being attacked, they could not reproduce, just like the story of the bison. So that kind of, I just wanted to open up with that story to help kind of help you guys understand how real these issues are and the reality of the situation and how unfortunate this miscommunication was that it uh, it ultimately led to the extinction of an entire group of people. Um, so we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to talk about how these differing ideologies and understandings of how society should be operated conflicted with um, the indigenous people and non-indigenous people in what we refer to as early Canada and kind of how the roles of women uh, being highly respected kind of were dismantled in a sense. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and today we are continuing on with the second part of our series, Okamawa Square Boss Lady, uh, as it's loosely translated into English. So there's no denying that there was a lack of understanding between the two groups of people. And when I say two groups of people, I mean the indigenous people and the newcomers, the settlers, as each had opposing views, ideas of social ideologies. So for example, indigenous people had operated collectively governed by a matriarch society for a very long time. And then when the newcomers came and Western culture kind of came forward, it started to hold individualism as a priority and they were governed by the patriarch system. So traditionally, the insights and approval of women were highly sought out before making any important decisions by indigenous people. There were often councils of women that the men leaders would go to for advice, for assistance in making very difficult or extreme decisions for their people because that's how much respect was given to women. And when the newcomers came, uh, governed by the idea of the patriarchy, um, little to no respect was given to indigenous people to begin with. Um, they saw them as savage and inhumane. 
uh, that they needed to be saved, that these poor savage people, they're so uh, behind, they're so dirty, they're so, all these bad stereotypes about indigenous people were thought of by these newcomers, unfortunately, um, that they needed to be assimilated or unfortunately exterminated. So if there's very low respect given to the indigenous men as these newcomers were governed by the patriarch ideologies that men are superior to the women, then the reality is there was absolutely no regard, respect given to the indigenous women. And before I go any further, I just want to kind of make a disclaimer that I'm not trying to demonize any group of people here, but just trying to give an insight from a historical perspective of the reality indigenous people face with the arrival of the newcomers as point of views of both parties are often overlooked and can be romanticized by history books. So what I mean by that is a common saying when referring to Western society was, how the West was won, how the West was colonized and settled. And it wasn't until my trip to Little Bighorn where the battle between Custer, uh, Custer's Last Stand occurred, that I stumbled across a book called How the West Was Lost. And by emphasizing how the West was lost, it was highlighting the loss that indigenous people experienced from colonization and um, the settling of their land and how history unfortunately can be biased depending on the storyteller. So going forward, um, unfortunately European cultures have a documented history of how poorly they viewed and treated women, especially women of intellect, of strong will, and how they disapproved of these qualities in women. And when a woman displayed these kind of qualities, she could be labeled as evil. So we look to the persecution of witches, um, the witch trials, which has a dominating history that extends well over a century. So during this century, uh, those accused of being a witch were majorly women. Um, that's not to say men weren't persecuted. They were persecuted as witches, but it was often because they were associated with a woman who had already been accused of being a witch, example, a husband or a brother. If a woman didn't comply to the model of Christian subservience that could easily be prosecuted as a witch, uh, the idea that women were more easily tempted by evil actually goes back to biblical times, originating from the tale of Adam and Eve where Eve is the one who committed the sin of going against the Lord Creator God's word of not consuming the apple and giving into temptation. And during these witch trials, many, 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 many women were unfortunately murdered, um, murdered to prove their innocence or just kind of murdered because someone accused them of doing something they didn't like. And because they were women, they really didn't have a say in what would happen to them or proving their innocence. And by understanding the history of how deep this issue goes back really helps us understand why patriarchy, 
patriarchal views have dominated Euro-Christian cultures. And it's no wonder that there was such, so much prejudice against indigenous women when the British and French troops first started settling into the New World. Um, before contact, stories of powerful women were shared and celebrated by indigenous people. In these stories, often an emphasis of the need to respect women were taught, and severe punishments would follow if any will, ill will was done against the, the women. And right off the top of my head, I think of the story of White Buffalo Calf Woman. That's one of the most um, celebrated and utilized stories by educational institutes and scholars. And I also think of the story of the Deer Woman. So I, I'd really like to share those stories with you. So we're going to take a quick break and continue on sharing the stories of the importance of women after the break. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections Radio Show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and today's topic is a continuation of the series Okamaz Squeo, uh, translating loosely into English as Boss Lady. going to be defined in other ways, but I think Boss Lady is pretty boss <laughs> That sounds so cheesy. Anywho, uh, we are focusing on the differing ideologies between the non-Indigenous people and the Indigenous people, the settlers that first came to Canada as indigenous people were off were not often they were governed by the matriarch system and with the newcomers they bought brought the ideologies of the patriarch system and we reviewed how far back this the uh, understandings of men should dominate women in european cultures how far back this goes and it goes back to the witch trials it goes back to the story of adam and eve and eve being the one who was tempted by evil and then respectfully on the other side of the spectrum we have indigenous people who uh, held women in very high esteem it was just something that was taught from a very young age through stories through teachings um, many of our understandings, our ideologies, our view on the world were taught through different stories. And I want to share the story of the White Buffalo Calf Woman with you. It originates from the Lakota people. Um, and this story, you may have heard it as it's often celebrated and utilized, as I said earlier. This story goes back about 2,000 years. And the story goes that the White Buffalo Calf Woman, she appeared to two warriors at the time. These two warriors were out hunting uh, bison, hunting for food in the sacred Black Hills of South Dakota. And they saw a big body coming towards them. And they saw that it was a white buffalo calf. As it came closer to them, it turned out to a beautiful young indigenous girl. At, the, at that time, one of the warriors thought bad in his mind. And so the young girl told him to step forward. And when he did step forward, a black cloud came over his body. And when the black cloud disappeared, the warrior, who had bad thoughts, was left with no flesh or blood on his bones. The other warrior kneeled and began to pray. And when he prayed, the white buffalo calf, who was now an indigenous girl, told him to go back to his people and warn them that in four days she was going to bring a sacred bundle. So the warrior did as he was told. He went back to his people, and he gathered all the elders and all the leaders and all the people in a circle and told them that what 
she had instructed him to do. And sure enough, just as she said she would on the fourth day, she came. They saw a cloud came down from the sky, and off of the cloud stepped the white buffalo calf. As it rolled onto the earth, the calf stood up and began, became this beautiful young woman who was carrying the sacred bundle in her hands. As she, and as she entered into the circle of the nation, she sang a sacred song and took the sacred bundle to the people who were there to take, who were there to take of her. She spent four days among our people and taught them about the sacred bundle, the meaning of it, and she taught them the seven sacred ceremonies. One of them was the naming ceremony, child naming. The third was the healing ceremony. The fourth was the making of relatives, or the adoption ceremony. The fifth one was the marriage ceremony. The sixth one was the vision quest, and the seventh one was the Sundance ceremony, the people ceremony for all of the nation. She brought us these seven sacred ceremonies and taught our people the songs and the traditional ways. As she instructed our people that as long as we perform these ceremonies, we would always remain caretakers and guardians of the sacred land. She told us that as long as we took care of it and respected it, that our people would never die and would always live. When she was done teaching all of our people, she left the way she came. She went out in the circle and as she was leaving, she turned and told our people that she would return one day for the sacred bundle. And she left the sacred bundle, which we still have to this very day. And the sacred bundle is known as the white buffalo calf pipe because it was brought to, brought by the white buffalo calf woman. It is kept in a sacred place in the Cheyenne Indian Reservation in South Dakota. It's kept by a man who is known as the keeper of the white buffalo calf pipe. His name is Arvo Looking Horse. And when she promised to return again, she made some prophecies at that time. One of the prophecies was the birth of the white buffalo calf would be a sign that it would be near the time when she would return again to purify the world. What she meant by that was she would bring back harmony, again, and balance and spirituality. So many of our stories are only meant to be taught during certain times and often an offering needs to be made to be heard these stories but I felt it was okay to share that story with you because it is published it is public knowledge the white the story of the white buffalo calf woman and it is a good teaching tool and it also feeds into our conversation we're having today of how indigenous people viewed women so from that story what did we learn we learned that this great spirit uh, the white buffalo calf spirit she chose to appear to the people as a woman where she had the power to choose to appear in any form but she chose to uh, bear herself as a woman emphasizing that women are very sacred and powerful by nature as we discussed last week we also learned of the respect demanded by women um, so we have the young brave the young warrior that's saw a white buffalo calf woman in her human form and he had very bad disrespectful thoughts of her and he ultimately met his dem his demise because of it because he did not respect the woman he saw her as an object he objectified her and because of this he literally met his maker and this really again emphasizes what the power women have and why it's 
wasn't okay to um, disrespect them in that sense, to not view them as objects. And when we do, or when this would happen, this is a punishable action. Uh, yes, it's a little severe by nature, but it's just emphasizing how important this is, especially for the young ones growing up. Another story I want to share really quickly is that of the deer woman, um, whose origins are more in the southeastern tribes. Uh, so deer woman appears as either a deer or as a woman or a combination of both. And what she does is she appears to men who have committed adultery, been disrespectful to women, have seduced women and kind of left them, um, that have caused any type of distress and harm towards a woman. She appears to them uh, and she seduces these men. And with that, she eventually kills these men. And when I first heard this story, I was like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. <laughs> but me being me, I dug deeper into it. I was curious about this. I was intrigued by it. And what I really learned, what the story of the dear woman was teaching us was of cultural preservation. Uh, and dear woman is actually a representation of the teachings of love and fertility. And by uh, presenting herself as such a force of nature, she's actually preserving and protecting love and fertility. She is teaching all of us that marriage and family life within the community are important and these relationships cannot be entered into lightly. Her tales of our morality narratives, she teaches us that the misuse of sexual power is a transgression that will end in madness and death. And the only one to, way to save oneself in the magic of dear woman is to look at her feet, see her hooves, and recognize her for what she is. To know the story and to act appropriately to save oneself from a lifetime lived in pain and sorrow. To ignore the story is to continue in the death dance with dear woman. Dear woman instructs us that sexual attraction does not a proper marriage make. It is a societal and cultural responsibility of each tribe member to choose a mate wisely. Therefore, ensuring tribal survival into the next generation. So I know that's kind of a lot to take in, but what's being summarized there is that dear woman appears to men who do not fit the qualities of being a supportive, loving husband and our father. Um, emphasizing once again the teachings that women are so sacred that they deserve to uh, have partners that will support them that will not only that are not only there because they are attracted to them be, because they love them and that they're going to respect them they're going to support them and they will do whatever it takes to um, be a providing husband and a providing father so dear woman picks her prey on the men that um, essentially victimize women so again here's another teaching another story taught by indigenous elders and passed down to emphasize how important it is to respect women and when there is no respect given there is a lot of um, punishment to follow i hope that makes sense all right we're going to take a quick break and we'll continue on our conversation in a few moments the indigenous connection show 
Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Indigenous Connections Radio Show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and today's topic is a continuation on the series Okamau Esquel, Boss Lady, loosely translated into English. And we are talking about how the transition of the matriarch society that dominated Canada before contact kind of was dismantled, and how Indigenous women uh, went from being these sacred creatures, not, I don't mean to say creatures, sorry, these sacred beings to being object, objectified and um, victims of crime. So these conversations are going to lead us into the missing murdered indigenous woman epidemic, but I believe that will be next week's conversation. Um, continuing on with what we discussed today, so we talked about creation stories um, from a Euro-Christian point of view, Adam and Eve, um, where Eve was pretty much the culprit that gave into temptation that um, defied orders of God and allowed all of that stuff to happen. Um, and kind of demonizing Eve, demonizing the woman, and how the patriarch system was kind of developed from there on out, where indigenous people, we tell stories of very powerful spirits um, presenting themselves as women and literally protecting women uh, with severe punishment of death if a man disrespects a woman. So we have differing views uh, by two different groups of people who are now residing in the same plot of land. And honestly, it doesn't take a trained psychologist to predict chaos will inevitably result as a fact of that, right? Like I said, we talked talked about the biotak and just the miscommunication there led to their unfortunate extinction as a people. So contact has been made by newcomers. Uh, Troops are starting to build forts and start to settle in what is now Canada and United States. Uh, Contact with indigenous groups have been made Uh, due to racial tensions. There's not much respect given to the indigenous people to begin with and really no respect given to the woman at all. Um, there was obviously a drastic change occurring for the indigenous people as these new people came and settled on the land that they called home for so long. And like I talked about before, uh, women councils were often called upon when it came to time to making drastic important decisions for the people and their opinions were considered vital for this period of time, right? But given the settlers that were settling, um, they were governed by patriarch views, and they did not respect the authorities' authoritative roles that women played and refused to speak and acknowledge them. So men were kind of left with, well, what the heck do we do kind of idea, and they were ultimately forced to adopt foreign ways of um, not consulting the women anymore because the women, uh, the troops refused to listen to the women in a sense. So here we already see a little bit of a shift happening where men have to now take on this responsibility, this role of being the ultimate um, decision maker. And then following into that, many of these men traveled to the new world as bachelors or they may have left their families at home um, 
and this kind of eventually led into the objectification of indigenous women and this became a really really big issue and this is an issue that we obviously deal with today uh, for so long our women were protected and were safe they were respected and held in the highest esteem and now with the newcomers and their um, I guess negative views on women their lack of respect for women we see crimes against women happening as this was almost non-existent existent before this and like I said in those stories it was taught that crimes against women were severely punishable. Um, so how did we go from being in a state of ultra, ultimate protection as women to being one of the highest targeted groups of women in violent crime statistics? How did this happen? How did indigenous women go, in, go from being so respected and so um, protected to be to the reality of being one in four indigenous women are the victims of violent and are sexual assault nowadays and as an indigenous woman myself and being a victim of crime myself being and seeing people I love and care about being victims of crime this statistic does not sit easily with me uh, it brings up a lot of hurt for me as I hope it would with any emphasizing human being to just think that it's not safe for your wife, for your sister, for your daughter, for your mother to just walk home. It's, it's crazy. It sucks. But anywho, um, we ultimately see the dismantling of the matriarch in this country. And to understand this, again, we need to go back in history. With the Canadian government being created and Indigenous people being colonized, they are viewed as less than. And a historical quote is referring to indigenous people of Canada as the Indian problem. So now we see people who have very unhealthy views of women um, to begin with, even of their own women, their own European women. It's no wonder that we see indigenous women starting to become something to be used and abused by men. Um, we see crimes against indigenous women beginning where they would be sexually assaulted, kidnapped, abused, and murdered. Uh, we see the views of European men had towards indigenous women through the language they use. So traditionally in Cree, we refer to women as a squale, uh, sorry, a woman as a square, plural, a square walk. Um, so again, the newcomers came, they have their own languages, they have their own accents, and they hear the women being called a square. And due to mispronunciation problems, that word a square got bastardized to squaw. And honestly, I even feel bad saying that word out loud, so I'm just going to refer to it as the S word going f on. And I'm going to continue. I'll tell you why I feel like this, because um, when that f word was first pronounced, it didn't have any derogatory meaning, but it, 
language, we say it has the power we give it. And eventually it became a very derogatory term referring to uh, essentially when we use the S word, people are saying dirty Indian B word. I'm not going to swear because I don't think that's polite to do on air. Um, but you get what I'm saying, right? So I always think of my mom's story when I hear that word. Uh, she went to residential school growing up and then due to a family tragedy she was moved off the reserve and pushed into the urban into Edmonton uh, she in the 70s where racism was still very very evident um, very it just happened everywhere she t- told me stories of how she would get beat up every day by school kids and as they beat her up they would refer to her as a dirty s-word uh, they would just do all this kind of hurt and call her names physically attack her and this was every day in her life from and she literally lived two blocks away from the school she had to go to um so being my mother's daughter that obviously hurts me when i hear people saying using that word today in pop in pop culture context and this reminds me of another story going back a few years uh there was a young lady in the United States who started a a clothing line business and all the power to her you know our young entrepreneurs but what the issue was that she decided to name her clothing line the spunky s-word and obviously there was a lot of backlash from the indigenous communities of what the heck why are you using this word and she just couldn't wrap her head around why there was so much backlash. I commented and shared the story of my mom and how that word made me feel and how by naming her clothesline Spunky S-word, she's literally called naming her clothesline Spunky Dirty Indian B-word. Um, her argument was, well, I'm part indigenous and when I use this word, I feel like I'm honoring the people. but if she really wanted to use the proper term, she would understand that that the S word is a bastardized term from the original pronunci- pronunciation of walk. And I felt if she really wanted to honor the people, she would use the actual word, a non-derogatory term. Um, I don't think her clothing line really gave any, <laughs> really took off after that. But this is why we have these conversations, that, those kind of incidents right there. We need to understand the historical context of where these things come from and why they are derogatory and why they actually hurt people. And that we're not overreacting and being sensitive, but that there is a lot of harm and a lot of abuse and a lot of mistreatment associated with that word historically. And it took us a long time as women to find our voices and to regain, reclaim our power. And I feel like we're not going to let people walk all over us again in that sense. All right, we're going to take a quick break. I still have one more conversation to have with you guys. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and today is our second part in the series called... A, uh, what is it called? 
Okamala Square. Oh my gosh. Okay. I have talking brain. I just talk and talk and talk and forget what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. Anywho, Okamala Square, loosely translated into boss lady from Cree. Um, so we're talking about um, the unfortunate dismantling of the matriarch society that dominated Canada to the patriarch one that we see today. Um, so we see further dismantling of the matriarch system in the residential schools. Um, so we had a whole three-part conversation about residential schools, so I won't get too much into what happened in these schools, but what we see are young kids from the tender age of five, six years old taken away from their family, from their communities, from the exposure of their indigenous cultural ways of knowing um, and shoved into these government-run schools and taught by nuns and priests the cunning of the white man, as they worded it. So because of this, they only had a very limited amount of years to interact with their family, to learn their indigenous ways. Uh, once they transitioned into the schools, they were governed by a Euro-Christian agenda. And in the schools, the boys and girls were separated, and the girls were taught to be subservient to men in all ways. So what a result of this was minimal interactions with the girls really stunted the growth and development of healthy and, com and compassionate relationships with one another. It really ingrained the concept of the other and unfamiliar becoming foreign. Um, and not knowing how to interact with women in a healthy way, not knowing how to treat them in a friendly manner, and not really having any exposure to women or girls in this sense, I feel really stunted a lot of growth and a lot of relationship building between the two. That is so important when we do enter into romantic relationships with another person is to know how to be friends with them, right? How to respect them. But because they were kept apart, there was no interactions and no getting to be comfortable with one another. Another big thing that came out of these schools was the um, victimization. So both boys and girls became victims to predators uh, in these schools. Um, in their home lives, this would have never happened before residential schools as children were highly respected just as women were and severe punishments resulted if any harm was to come to children. As children are considered the key to the future, they are our most valuable resource. But as the children became victims of uh, sexual assault against them by older people, by people who they considered to be their caregivers that were uh, passing down knowledge and teachings to them, they unfortunately learned how to become predators themselves. And this is where we see uh, crimes against women really becoming evident by our own people because of the residential school, because of cycles of abuse and learned behaviors, uh, learning that this is how the world works without anyone there to intervene and explain to these children that this is not okay 
Uh, it is not healthy what happened to them. And because it was such a common occurrence, it became normalized as this is just how day-to-day -day life works. You take what you want from that person. And this is just what we do to each other. Uh, there was no consequences for the predators that were preying on the children in the residential school. So how did these children know this action was wrong? When these kids aged out of these schools, they left these schools with that idea, um, that learned behavior of assaulting and taking. And many of these kids grew up to reenacting these crimes, going from the classic victim to a predator. And this often happens in cycles of abuse, as it is, like I said, a learned behavior. This is what was happened to them. This is what was taught to them. No one was there to tell them otherwise. So they went out and started committing these crimes as well. And we really see a rise in crime in our own nations. And we see an, uh, lateral violence becoming an extreme issue uh, for our indigenous people. And how we came from respecting and holding women in high, such high esteem and sharing stories of how important these women are to becoming predators against our own women. Okay, so I think I'm gonna end it there for today. Uh, we will have a closing conversation here in a few moments. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, thank you for joining me for this week's conversation um, on our second part of the Okamawa Squayo series, uh, Boss Lady and talking about the transition from our matriarch society to one of a patriarch society. Um, so next week, as we continue down the timeline, as we talked about contact and how things started to change with uh, the settlements of new people coming to Canada, as well as the residential school, we're going to kind of talk in more modern times of the missing and murdered Indigenous women epidemic that as Canadians, as Americans, we face. This is a very huge, huge issue that has not really been talked about only in these fast, past few years with the, the uh, oncoming of social media being so popular and giving voices to so many people who never had the opportunity to speak their truth before. Uh, we see a lot of grassroots organizations springing up and advocating for the reality that uh, indigenous women are facing what has been referred to as a genocide in modern-day Canada. Uh, it's going to be a very heavy topic to talk about, so mentally prepare yourself for that. We will tell some jokes and talk about self-care as we continue on this conversation. But again, thank you for joining me, and I hope you guys have a great week, and we will talk again soon. And that's the Indigenous Connection Show with Randy Lynn. I like to give credit to A Tribe Called Red for their track sisters that we used in our intro.